Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey, it's Dan here. I wanted to let you know about a brand new podcast from Risk Reversal Media called Breaking Even with former golf pro Ned Michaels. We cover everything from golf to real estate, options trading, and sports betting. Each week, Ned is joined by some of the biggest names in golf and sports handicapper, Jonathan Coachman. Guy Danny and I drop by to attempt to fix Ned's swing at the markets. New episodes drop every Thursday, so follow it in your favorite podcast store and don't forget to leave us a review. You're listening to On the Tape. I'm Guy Adami, joined by Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. We have a huge show for you today. We'll discuss everything happening in the markets with two special guests, Vincent Daniel and Porter Collins, two dudes with four first names between them. I love that. They are Danny's colleagues from The Big Short. And later, we'll go off the tape with top strategist Anastasia Amoroso from iCapital Network. But we have to start with our Big Short friends. If you don't know Vinnie Porter and Danny, all worked for Front Point Partners in the early 2000s where they correctly predicted the subprime mortgage crisis. Vinny is co-founder of Seawolf Capital and is a Mets-Jets fan. Do not hold that against him. We'll get into that later. And Porter is also a co-founder of Seawolf and is a two-time Olympic rower. Before we get into it, fellas, I got to get a few things off my chest. We got Porter and Vinny here, by the way. I think you both know, I think I've made it abundantly clear in various different mediums that I loathe the Mets. Everything about them I find just reprehensible. By the way, I loved it the other day at that doubleheader. It apparently was one of those giveaway days. It was come as your favorite empty seat day at Shea, which I found to be, that's a great giveaway. Only the Mets can pull it off the way they do, fellas. I'm going to interject here. Having lived with these guys for so long, Porter's obviously a Met fan, but Vinny bleeds that horrible looking orange and blue. I said, what's going to happen? He goes, what do you think's going to happen? Steve Cohen's going to clean house. So guy, you fancy yourself a Wall Street guy, right? Well, I'll play your reindeer game. Yeah, yeah. You know Steve Cohen, correct? I do. I do. Is he a winner or a loser? I'd say he's a winner in certain aspects. Absolutely a winner. Does he have a lot of money? He has a shitload of money. Yes, he does. Would you short Steve Cohen? Interesting question. In the aggregate, no. But in this very specific vertical, the answer is yes, I would. And I'll tell you why quickly. And then I'd love for you to opine. If he wants to hire Theo, which my sense is he does, one, he's got to get around whatever thing that happened with the Cubs, number one. Number two, is he willing to give him partial ownership of the team? Those are your two things you're struggling with. So you don't think he's going to throw money at either Theo or someone from the team you can't beat, the Rays, to rebuild the organization? You're going to bet against that happening. The answer is yes, because I think it's not just about money. It's about equity ownership that he has to give up. I'm certain in the case of Theo, that is the case, that he is asking for something that he's probably not going to get from the Mets. And the other thing is your whole, I'd rather have the Red Sox lose to the Mets, right? Mm -hmm. I think you lost your Thurman Munson diehard Yankee card with that one. (laughs) I mean, that's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Every Yankee fan I know doesn't give a rat's tail about the Mets. They view us as Jam Brady versus Marsha. And I know you know that pop culture reference. No, I do. I had a huge Marsha Brady. I will be honest with you. I mean, as Who a didn't? product of Who the didn't? 60s and 70s, I mean, Marsha was, she was the so shit. So why do you care? Was 86 so bad for you? It was horrible. I will tell you why it was horrible. I just graduated from college. I'm living at home. I'm miserable. I'm working from like 6.30 until 11 every night. And then the friggin' Red Sox play the Mets. I have said this. I was hoping this was the outcome that I was looking for. Rain until fucking January. Pardon me. All right. So you guys were two of our first guests, I think, back in February. You actually detailed your long thesis for energy stocks back then. That's been a great trade. And it's actually one of the trades that's working very well right now as the markets are kind of in this little bout of volatility over the last couple of weeks. We usually start the podcast just other than guy hating on the Mets, as we just did. 
we usually talk about kind of the week that was in the markets. And this was a pretty interesting week. If you go back and look at September 20th, remember that Monday, it happened to be my birthday. We got to give a shout out. Amanda Diaz, our executive producer, it's her birthday today. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, 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 Amanda. But we had that big reversal. Remember that off of the lows? We actually haven't had a reversal like that in some of these sell-offs in the last few. What do you guys think is going on right here? Do you think this is going to be a sustained sell-off? The markets are kind of paused right here at those prior lows here. Are we going to break and are we going to finally test the 200-day moving averages in the S&P and the NASDAQ? I'm actually a little bit more bearish here in that I think the market's got a lot of problems to digest. I think the biggest problem is inflation. And I've been saying this for a long time, and I'm finally being proven right that if you look at a couple of specific examples, look at FedEx, look at Dollar Tree. The problem is labor inflation, and then shipping and transportation is a real problem for supply chains and just cost. And so I think the market is digesting a lot more inflation internally than people admit. And people say there's no inflation because look at the bond market. Well, I'll take my cue from FedEx, not the bond market. I know Vinny's always talked about wage inflation is the one thing that doesn't really go away because you can fire someone, but you don't lower their salary or their pay. But Anchorman was a great movie by none other than Adam McKay. I don't think guys seen either The Big Short or Anchorman But there was a quote that Powell gave yesterday, and I think one of the things going on is that Powell's losing control, if he ever had control of the market a little bit. But here was the quote. Almost all of the time, inflation is low when unemployment is high. So interest rates work on both problems. Well, that reminded me of Paul Rudd's Sex Panther by Odeon. 60% of the time, it works every time. And that's exactly what I thought of when I heard that today. So I think, and Vinny can opine here, obviously, on the Fed, I think the one thing that you and Guy do agree on is your... Hate, I don't say hatred for the Fed, but animosity. No, hatred, that's fine. I'll, I'll use that word. And I'm going to let Vinny talk. I want to hear him. But I will say this again on this podcast. I think amongst the many villains of the 21st century, and there are many, central bankers, specifically our Federal Reserve, is going to be at the top of that list. Vinny. Preach, my man. And look, Guy and I agree on a lot of different things, particularly on movies and the like. It's going to be interesting because we're at this point in time. I'll take you back. Let's say we're all three of us are at Seawolf and all of us think that the markets are way overvalued. So whenever, anytime you see the markets go down like this, we start getting bearish. And lo and behold, what typically happens when guys like us get bearish, the Fed comes in and saves the day. So this time is going to be interesting. And I don't want to go against that because they just do it too many times. It's kind of like the roadrunner. But this time their issue is different. This time the issue is not a demand issue. It's a supply issue. And it's not like the Fed coming in and stop tapering is going to help the supply issue. It's only going to make it worse because right now we don't have enough stuff coming in to either fuel us or feed or stock the aisles for us to buy. So how does the Fed help that? I don't know the answer. Now, on the other hand, one guy that keeps my bearish head in check through the years, which was a fellow guess you had on the podcast was Tony Dwyer, and he's starting to get bullish. Today, he put out a report and said it's almost time to buy. So to me, there are a lot of cross currents because historically speaking, if you look at the charts and technicals and all that, it's telling you we should get ready for the 4Q rally. But I have to tell you, as Porter said, this inflation thing's an issue. So I think there's going to be a lot of push-pull over the next two months with the market. I can't call the market right now. But wouldn't you say the setup right now is as bad as it's been because, at least temporarily, the Fed, quote, doesn't have the markets back. It's a little bit of disarray. He's lost control of two of his regional presidents, which have now stepped away. The pressure is now obviously on him to prove that this inflation is transitory, which it obviously is not. He defined it himself as non-transitory in his testimony when he said it could go on to 2022, right? What's the definition of that? And he's boxed in now. But Yes, the Fed could change tapering. They could change from $120 billion a month and just go to 240 But I think you bring up a great point about it's a supply issue. And that's not abating anytime soon. Bad Bath Beyond today shouldn't have been shocking to anyone. They didn't miss that horribly on revs. They missed, obviously, on the margin. And they're getting drilled. But that stock's still up. I think it's up for the year. But anyway, there's a lot of these things which are going to happen. I'll end with this on this part is that we've said all along, you can pass it on to the consumer or you can eat it. If you pass it on to the consumer, it's very inflationary. If you don't, it hurts your margin. So Dan, the S&P is trading at 22 times 2022 earnings right here. Normally you see that coming out of a recession, you'll pay a higher multiple coming out because of growth rate. 
Well, I don't think it seems pretty likely, especially if rates are going to continue to move higher. And you think we're at kind of peak margins. And so all these bottlenecks and disruptions to supply chains and that sort of thing. And I think the wage inflation that Vinny just mentioned, all of that stuff is going to kind of ultimately be a hit to margins. I said the flip side of it is if you're going to pass it through to consumers right now, have you guys seen the consumer data over the last few months? It's not good. And we still have about seven or eight million Americans who are unemployed, who were employed pre-pandemic. And then the one thing I'll just say about that, the wage inflation bit is like, Okay, you might not be able to lower those wages. And I think we actually had this conversation with Tony Dwyer when he was in here. But let me tell you something. Going to a McDonald's, you're not ordering food from a person anymore. You're ordering it from a screen. And I just think that one of the biggest themes, the economic themes pre-pandemic was automation, right? And so I just feel like we're going to get back to some of those levels. I think these bottlenecks and these supply chain disruptions and all this sort of stuff are going to be worked out. And I think it's also important to remember that this trade war that we were in from 2017, 18, or whatever, we're already starting to feel some of the effects of this sort of stuff. So I think the bigger concern that I would have is, and Danny's been talking about it on the podcast now for weeks, if not months, and I'm sure you guys have all been talking, is that stagflation environment what it means for the markets, okay? What it means for valuations. That was the question that you just asked. And that's the thing that I just don't think with the stock market still up 16% on the year, just 4% from an all-time high, that doesn't make any sense to me. That was 40 years ago. So I don't think anyone's seen that. But I think Porter should opine here because I think oil is having a much bigger impact. Forget about that it's causing a little bit more inflation in the system, but just as an input cost. But Vinny and Porter have kind of moved away from longshore financial services, thank God, more into the energy sector. Now Porter lives in Planet Houston. And so let me just say before you guys go that we are all ESG focused in life. Porter, if any one of the three of us is probably the most conscious of the environment and we're all about corporate governance and all that, but there's a point where it becomes detrimental to do. And I think oil prices, I think you guys can talk about is you're seeing that impact directly as a result of kind of ESG implementation and the way that it's coming in. So Porter, maybe talk about that a little bit and kind of what you guys are thinking on the energy sector in general. I'll first touch on the why we don't do financials in 30 seconds. The yield curve is manipulated. The rates are manipulated. So why fight it? Back to guys' hatred. I don't want to play. I just don't want to play in a yield curve that's flat and manipulated. So on the ESG thing, Energy consumption is all-time high. Gasoline consumption is about to come back at an all-time high. You think that COVID, all these emerging markets like India and then Australia, which has been in lockdown, UK, which has been in lockdown, are all about to come out. And so we're having this big reopening of COVID again, and you're going to come into peak demand for oil and transportation. And as you know, shipping is not slowing down. Trucking is not slowing down. The only thing that it has slowed down is the rig count. And that's because the banks are investing. Speaking of ETFs, Porter, we talk about how someone like a BlackRock and their ESG component of things can impact the price of oil. I think it's ESG in terms of ETFs. But look at the news this week. You know, Harvard is pulling all their investments in oil and carbon. And there's pension plans every week doing the same thing. And so when you have capital being sucked out of all these industries, if you think about the capital cycle, returns go up. And so that's what we do. The three of us like to invest when capital is being pulled out and things can't really get any worse. But in this case, Porter, what you guys are saying is that because the lack of infrastructure investment in rigs and things like that, there's going to be a supply issue moving forward with oil. So let's just categorize. Let's make it simple. If banks aren't willing to lend into the fossil fuel business anymore, right? you're creating a situation. Correct. Where, okay. So the woke ESG police, whose captain is Larry Fink, you can't, as a bank, put a lot of incremental capital into fossil fuels. You might get the death penalty if you put money in coal. I'm serious. So if you're a bank and you have companies that want warehouse lines or lines of credit to build rigs, you can't do it. And so as a result, that's why you're not seeing the supply of oil match the demand. And hence the reason why NAC gas is up, why coal is up, why oil is up, why the UK is having petrol problems right now. And we're going into the winter. So guy, you talk about the 12 people that are leading you and all that, all these men, who's going to step up and say, this ESG thing, eh, maybe we went a bit too far. Maybe we need to put some shovels in the ground and get some fossil fuel out so that we could fuel homes. Maybe a balanced approach would have been better. <laughs> so you guys are long energy stocks still? 
Okay, so I'm just kind of thinking back to 2014 when the Fed was contemplating taper and then thinking about coming off ZERP in 2015. And once they started doing that, we know that obviously rates went higher, the dollar went higher, and crude oil got absolutely destroyed. Crude oil went down 65% from its highs in 14, I think, to its lows in maybe early 2016. So is there any scenario if we were to move forward with the taper and let's just say rate hikes start kind of coming in a little bit where you start losing interest in this energy trade? Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to keep evaluating as the facts change, but the rig count is half of what it was in 2014. And the consumption is much higher than it was. And energy consumption is much higher. We're also in the uranium trade, which we've been in, as Danny knows, and we've been talking about in our letters for over a year now. And we definitely got a little lucky with Sprott doing what it's doing in terms of buying uranium in its uranium trust and taking the price from 30 to 50. But I think the concept is correct and that you need good nuclear power as a base load of energy. As you saw in Texas last winter, wind and solar are unreliable. And so you need base load power. Everything we use, our iPhones, everything needs electric and we need base load power. And so that's what we're long. And look at the energy sector as a percentage of the S&P. Was it one and a half percent? It's like an elephant through a mouse hole. The uranium move wasn't the last week. The market cap of the entire sector is like under a billion dollars. It's crazy. And Dan, the other thing, if I recall correctly in 14 and 15, and don't get me wrong, we're very cognizant that this is a cyclical. So at some point, we're going to have to get off the train when we'll see if we could get it right or not. But in 14 and 15, the major difference was that the banks and the private equity companies were fueling the shale boom in Texas, which created an oversupply of oil that was being put out in the market. That's not happening right now. So at some point, I think it will. What I'm fascinated with this winter is when one of our esteemed leaders flicks the switch and says, we can't do this ESG thing right now. As Porter says, we need a balanced approach. All that makes perfect sense to me. I just do two charts that I overlay, the Dixie, the US dollar index, and crude. And a picture is worth a thousand words. And all the other stuff about rig counts and this and that or whatever, that's the chart that it spelled it all out to me. But again, we're probably spending too much time on this because it is what percentage of the S&P 500? Well, that, it, it, yes, it's a small percentage of the S&P, but for us, it's what people should be paying attention to. All day long, everyone talks about the seven names of Fang. And I get it. That's what people own. And one of the guys that we really trust, analysts, made a great astute comment, if I could get him out, James Aiken. He goes, I spent the last 10 years understanding the plumbing of financials. He goes, I now need to take the next few years to understand the plumbing of energy. And not just from a stock perspective, but we just need to understand this grid and what's happening, because I think it's going to have implications for everything else that we look at. Agreed. So why don't I move on kind of to the market levels and what you guys are looking at? I know we've, we've talked in the show before, like one of the signals is kind of the breakdown in the meme stocks, this nonsense on these NFT or some of NFT nonsense with the apes and the birds or what, I don't know what these things are. To me, that was the sign of the beginning of the end, obviously the excesses that are out there. But what are you guys looking at as far as the market right now? I mean, I sat with you for years and I know we're always hesitant to go full bearish on things, but it feels 2000-ish. doesn't feel global financial crisis. It feels 2000-ish. You've been conditioned and trained not to fight the Fed. And the non-ending walls of liquidity are hard to fight. But we're, of course, still short stocks. And we're short stupidity. We're short Kathy Wood. I think she's a horrendous investor. I really do. Lovely woman. But her track record of selling stocks low, buying them back higher, we're short the apes, we're short AMC. I don't know. Are people going back to the movies? Well, not $18 billion worth or whatever the market cap is today. I don't even know what it is. There's so many absurd valuations and valuation is very tough to do, but we're short a handful of these absurd valuations and hoping to get a little bit lucky with a couple data points. You know, we got a little bit lucky with Peloton. We were short Peloton and you just have to get lucky on a couple of these big shorts. And obviously the short side is tough. You have to really watch yourself and you get ripped to shreds like we have in Tesla. So here's a quick one, Porter, and we talked about this the other night on Fast Money. We did an overlay of the ARK innovative ETF versus Tesla, and Tesla's the largest holding in that of 10%. And if you look what happened from July 1st, Tesla's gone up 15%, $800 billion market cap-ish, and ARK has gone the opposite way and is making new six-month lows right now. So if you look at all the other top holdings ex-Tesla, they're all doing horribly. So to your point, I'm not opining on whether she's a good investor or not. I think thematically, I think she kind of identifies some good themes, but 
Roku's in there. I don't think that's a particularly innovative company. So you guys tell me, like, when you look at that vehicle and then you look at if Tesla was actually, and Tesla is underperforming the NASDAQ this year, obviously at a monster year. If Tesla was down, that thing would be below $100 right now. Yes. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in the last few days, she's been selling Tesla stock because I think she's having redemptions. Remember that her investors have daily liquidity, so she has to sell something. Sell what you can, not what and you I want. And I think she's selling what she can, not what she wants to. Oh, you mean she can't sell the small cap stocks that she owns 37% of? I think she's going to have a problem That's with that. That's a little problem. Something called a bid-ass spread that might be difficult? Yeah. yeah. What I think is finally happening is that people are actually figuring out not all tech is the same. Google is one of the best business models of all time. We've been long Google. I love it. But just because it's in tech, there's a lot of companies that look like that, but are don't make any money. And we're short. A lot of these companies don't make money. And eventually we'll get paid. Vinny, before Evergrande was a story, Danny brought it up on this podcast. I have a question for you because I think I know what's going on. I'm probably wrong. It's interesting that the Bank of China has effectively said, you know what, we're just going to let this fail. Good for them, by the way, because at least capitalism is working in some way, shape or form. I mean, we have now capitalized gains and socialized losses here, but that's for another show. What is the end game here with the Chinese? Because I think they're in the midst of losing a couple battles to win the war, and I don't think anybody is taking them seriously enough for what is truly going on. I sadly agree with you completely. And I would say between Porter and myself, I was the one that freaked out on Evergrande, as I like to call it. And what I think the Chinese are doing is they're making a lot of strategic decisions. We'll see if they work of getting, so it seems to me, their house in order. Now on the Evergrande situation, my guess is the bag holder are going to be the offshore unsecured creditors. And I know Danny has talked about this a lot and me and him love going down these cynical, crazy rabbit holes, but a lot of these roads seem to leave to tether and a lot of the so-called stable coins. And I don't know if Danny said this, but I know I could already think what he's thinking on this. That would, for China, kill many birds with one stone. I think I'd use that exact phrase. If you can get rid of this currency or this store of value that is going to compete against your currency and your stable coin or central digital bank currency, why wouldn't you do it? I would. And so if they could get rid of the problem while cleaning up their property market. Now, here's the negative, right? At the very least, that means Chinese property is not coming back. And as a result of it, that is a hit, all else being equal to global GDP. Has to be. And, and that has been an engine of global GDP for the last 10 years. So we have to make it up some other place. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. But it's definitely a negative. It's on the negative side of the ledger. I watch the Evergrande bond prices more than I do the stock. Stock trades all over the place, right? Up 20%, down 10 Still trading at 23 cents on the dollar, to your point, Vinny, about external debt holders outside of China that are probably going to get burned. I think that's going to happen. China looks like they want to save people that have put down payments on apartments because their whole idea is to kind of bring up lower class into a middle class and have all of China, right? Be kind of a middle class. So I think I'm just watching the debt there. But back to the market again. In 2000, when momentum dies in some of these stocks, they don't go to a level where you buy it on value, right? They just crack. And what happens is people freeze. They see it happening, but they don't react. They say they want to buy the dip, they don't. They should sell their stocks, but they don't. I see this. This is human behavioral. This is behavioral finance 101. You can see it right now. I believe that we are at the precipice of not just a meme stock crackdown, but a reset that's going to happen in the markets. And I, it's not so much calling for it for years. Now the excesses are built into them. It just feels that way to me. And so back to the point about when do you buy a stock? Now I want to make one comment on ARK and Tesla because everything's incremental, right? Every piece of news is incremental to where a stock's valuation is. When AMC goes from 45 to 35, and it's a good box office weekend, it's irrelevant to what the valuation of that company is. Because one, they don't make money. Two, you can't justify 15, 20, 25, or even 10 to work its way. Tesla, everyone, the reason the stock's not down right now is people are excited or freaked out about either being short in front of it around the quarterly delivery number. And I say this, who cares if it's 250,000 cars in the quarter? Who cares if the China number is 50,000? Because it's an $800 billion company. We're not going off of a $40 billion base. We're going off 800. So again, that to me in the market, when I see stuff like that start to crack, then I'll know that the excesses are gone. Your point is though, Tesla is going to be the last battle fought in this market. 
I think we can stop talking about meme stocks. There's two of them. Well, there's Plug Power. There's Bed Bath & Beyond was a meme stock too today, but yeah. Well, my point is, is like the entire market cap of all of them combined is $50 billion tops. And I just think we've been talking about this theme of, okay, so IPOs in the last year, done. You'll have a Warby come out, it'll trade well, but that'll be much lower. Crypto got cut in half, right? SPACs got absolutely destroyed. So all those pockets of speculation you're talking about are coming out. And then all those stocks like you guys just mentioned that did really well because of the pull forward and demand or acceleration of trends, the Pelotons, the Zooms, that sort of thing, those act like unholy death right now. So it's all happening to your point. It really is. When does Tesla crack? Facebook's now down 11%. When did Google, when did Amazon, when did Apple, when do they actually do it? Amazon did break and Amazon broke on fundamental news and it broke in July when the market was still at the highs. So I think we need some more fundamental breaks and maybe we get that on Q3 earnings and maybe it has to do with a reversion, some sort of change in margins going forward, like pricing and decelerating margins and higher prices and higher rates. One thing I have to bring up, fellas, and this is again for Vinny and Porter, I, I want to hear your thoughts on this as well. September 17, 2019, will mean, it's meaningless to most people. I'm, I'm certain that you guys remember the repo market basically blew up. And I would submit, although obviously COVID was the igniter, the tinder for the market melting down started that day. That's just my thoughts. Over the last month and a half, two months, the reverse repo market is doing extraordinarily similar things, obviously, to the other side. Today, and this is Thursday that we're taping this, $1.6 trillion in reverse repos, a number that prior to this would have seemed unimaginable. A lot of people say it's not a big deal. I think it's a huge deal. Am I making too much out of this, Vinny? Yes and no. No, you're not. If you listen to some of the plumbers that are out there, this facility was set up to find a seamless way to get the excess liquidity off the banking system into the money market fund with a yield. I'll buy it for a little bit. But you're not wrong on your overall premise, which is, let's keep it simple. We issue way too much debt, and we don't have enough revenues coming in the door. And as a result, we have to print lots and lots of money or find someone to buy this stuff. And we need to find someone to buy our debt at the rates we need them to buy it in order for the world to work. And to me, that was 2019, is that the people didn't want to buy it at that price. It's a problem. And the problem is, is that I don't see the deficit issue going away. Probably by next year, I don't know what the infrastructure bills are going to be. We're going to see. But I agree with you. It's an issue. And in order for this world to work, rates need to stay low. And that's why Porter and I have always been in the camp that rates really can't go up that much higher because if they do, the world breaks, period. We're at 150 or I don't know where we are right now, 152 on the 10-year, wherever it is, which on an absolute basis is still extremely low. But I think the trajectory and the direction is scaring people. We can't function. So I think we should talk about right now, we dealt in financial services for a long time. You can plug and play interest rates on various parts of the yield curve to figure out, oh, that's the earnings. Oh, you're going to see consumer credit degrade quickly in there. Hey, this and the other. But this market's been functioning in the securitization market, in credit in general, right? It all has been running smoothly because rates have been so low. People will buy any yield that they can. So I know that's a two-part question, but talk about the impact that rates have kind of in general on the market and why it's not sustainable. And not just because the U.S. won't be able to afford to make its interest payments, because I don't know if that'll ever happen, but just what that impact is on valuations in general. I have a weird view of this. At least I think it's weird. I think we have so much debt that rates are your leading indicator, not the other way around. And what I mean by that is if rates are 3 4 4%, GDP growth will be negative. I don't care what else is happening in the world. And the reason why I feel that is everything in this world is financed. Everybody is short volatility. You buy everything on credit. People are buying treasuries with 30 times leverage on credit. Everything's on credit. So if you raise rates, the world stops. And to me, it's the kryptonite. And the reason why this market really hasn't cracked that much because they don't allow that kryptonite to come into play. So you're saying that Jay Powell learned his lesson in Q4 2018? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And look, we want to have it because we're, we're advocates of price discovery. But I have to admit, we're at the point right now, and this is probably the bearish, most bearish thing I will say. I don't know if we could survive it. Or there's going to be a material change in this world if we ever allow price discovery. And I think unlike, say, 10, 12 years ago where we could have done it, if we did it now, it would be nasty, really nasty. What do you got, Olympian? No, I agree. It, listen, if you had true price discovery in the bond market, the S&P would be down 
right? And I'm not predicting that at all, but I think Dan made an excellent point about markets actually fairly efficient here. It's sniffing out that certain companies have problems. Look, Amazon's not the horse that it once was, right? And I actually think that shipping costs could actually bite them in the upcoming quarters. And it figured out FedEx, it figured out Bed Bath & Beyond. And it's a pretty efficient machine and it cycles. And you can see the bearish corners of the market if you want to get bearish. We've seen the trailer of 3Q earnings. It's a horror story so far, at least in certain pockets of the market. Like you said, FedEx, Nike, Bed Bath & Beyond. It's not pretty. Yeah, there was one earlier this week when Micron reported they issued guidance. They had good quarter, good operating margins, but their guidance for earnings and sales were down like low teens and for Q4. And you would have thought that stock would have been easily down 10%, and it wasn't, though, which I thought was really interesting. And again, it's a cheap kind of cyclical tech name. It's not a high valuation name, that sort of thing. But again, I think that we're going to get a lot of that. I think that what you guys just mentioned was a big preview of what we're going to see in the next few weeks. I think it's important to mention and to kind of bring it back. So when rates go up and things back up in the financing markets in general, when credit spreads widen, let's just keep it at that, everything becomes more expensive. There are so many companies out there that are wolves in cheap clothing, right? That the investor believes it's something that it's not. I'll take Carvana. I'll just pick, I'll pick a random stock. Let me just pick a random stock, Carvana. They don't make money on selling cars. They never have. They actually probably lose money by buying cars and reselling they make money on the securitization, if at all. I'm saying the money, the gains that you see, that stuff disappears in a credit spread environment. First of all, credit will deteriorate. It only has one direction to go. No one can tell me credit's going to get better. But we dealt with Harley Davidson. We were telling people back in the day, this is not a motorcycle selling company. They were financing everything. Everything, what happened, the government bailed them all out with what was called TELF. And now whether people think something like that will happen again to kind of smooth out the system, it is not happening now. So- I believe people need to look and see the true earning stream or what the revenue producing things are for some of these companies that claim, not that even claim, that are perceived, they're covered by the wrong analysts. They're not covered by the financial analysts and they should be, things like that. That to me is really where opportunity there is as a short seller and a buyer. So I think it's crucial. I actually want to end on a more positive note. Get out of Texas already with this optimism. We love to go zero to bear, but like the stocks that we own, are single-digit PE. We own dividend yields from 5 to 20% or higher than that. And they're great cash-flowing companies, just the stocks people hate. They're deep value. We own coal stocks. We own gold stocks. We own energy stocks. We own uranium stocks. People hate this stuff. And that's the cyclical investor that we like to be. It'll have its trade. It'll play out. And I was having a conversation with... Um a friend of mine who's a portfolio manager. He's about 35, 38. And I said, you know, I've been studying your age group, your demographic. And I said, you have two different ways to you, two different things. You practice an art of gap, which is growth at any price. No matter what the price is, no matter what the company does, 20 times revenues, 30 times revenues, you buy it. Then the other thing you do is if it's a capital intensive business that's not growing, they won't buy it ever. And so you'll point to them like, look at this, the trends are getting better and it's a 30% free cash flow yield. And they'll just like, nope, not touching it. So where we play, as Porter said, is in that area, in the second area. It's those old textbooks. Remember that people used to read, you know, fundamental analysis, you know, we, we like that stuff. Before we get out of here, since Porter is in the great state of Texas that has like nine different football teams, would you care to give us one National Football League pick this weekend before I go to Vinny, then Danny? I'll go with college football. I'm taking the Georgia Bulldogs, that is, over Arkansas Razorbacks. Laying 19? That's a lot of wood, Porter. Arkansas is tough this year. I will tell you, I think, you're going to think I'm crazy. I'm just telling you right now, there's a chance that Old Miss wins outright against Alabama. Vinny, to you, give me a give me a pick this weekend. What's the line on the Saints-Giants? It's got to be at least seven and a half. They're in New Orleans, first game there. I don't have it in front of me. Danny could probably find out. I'm actually going to pick the Giants on this one. Win outright or with, with the, the points. points? Give me the points. I need the points. I need that. the points. Yes, you do. As, if as if do it's I. over seven, I'll, I'll take the Giants. Guy, what do you got for us? Everybody's going to be watching this Tampa Bay-New England game. Everybody's going to be on Tampa Bay. I'd rather go with Belichick. I think he's probably spent the last year of his life figuring out how he's going to win this game. So I, I'm down a few hunch to Danny Rose. You're down four hunch. Oh, sorry, sorry. Mom, if you're listening. Danny, I, I, Danny's <laughs> like De Niro in Casino right now. <laughs> Let me just say that. 
Chargers, we liked at the beginning of the season. Both Guy and I did. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. I did as well. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride that horse, man. I do like them this week. There's two games I like. I like Dallas over Carolina, but they're laying four and a half, so it could be tight. And I like the Chargers over the Raiders laying three. But I'm scared of the line because I think these games are both a little close. I like the money line. So you know what that is? That's when you just bet the winning team. You got to lay wood. Thank you. So Thank Dallas you, is minus 200. So bet 200 to win 100. Dan, if you would like Carolina, you can get two to one on outright. And then I also like the Chargers, minus 170. I'll probably lay three also, but I like them. So my two picks, I'll give two picks, are money line bets on those two teams to win outright. I think Dallas is the most underrated team in the NFL still. And they're not getting the credit they deserve. And as a Jets fan, we could use the Panthers to lose just the game. I spoke to Mark Cahotis this week, and he's a huge Raider fan, and he thinks that the Raiders win outright uh, over the Chargers. So that's it, fellas. We appreciate your time. It looks like Dan Nathan's going to be down about 1,600. Are we <laughs> <laughs> Hey, guys, honest to God, thank you both so much for doing this. We've got to do this more often for sure. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Anastasia Amoroso is a managing director and the chief investment strategist at iCapital Network, where she is responsible for providing insight on private market investment opportunities for advisors and their high net worth clients. Previously, Anastasia was an executive director and head of cross-asset thematic strategy for J.P. Morgan Private Bank. You may recognize her from her appearances on CNBC and Bloomberg TV. All right, Anastasia Amoroso, thank you for joining Guy Adami and me on the tape. Danny Moses would have loved to have been here. I think he's on the links or somewhere. Guy, is that where he is on a day like today? Yes, is the short answer. When you're Danny Moses of the Big Chill fame, that's exactly what you do. You go play golf. Not the Big Chill. All right, so Anastasia, I'm assuming that you've seen the movie or read the book, The Big Short, okay, right? Yes, you have, okay? So Guy Adami, and this is not like a running joke or anything like that. Danny has been doing the podcast with us for nine months, and Guy just will just, he just will not watch the movie. And he says why? Because the store around the corner where we used to get the movies closed down or something like that? Well, that's the problem. And I'm also waiting for the book to come out first. Sometimes you like to read the book before you see the movie. So I'm hoping that, you know, when they do release that, that I can sort of brush up and then watch the movie that stars Danny Moses. I believe Brad Pitt pays Danny Moses, doesn't he? No, he doesn't. All right, Anastasia, thanks for joining us on the tape. Let's get into it because you are a market strategist. I've watched your work. You and I have been on CNBC together. I don't think you've ever been on Fast Money with Guy and myself. We're gonna have to change that after this episode here. What's going on here? You have a very bullish framework for the market. I think it's important to remember that while the S&P 500 is down, what, three and a half, four percent from all-time highs just in the last few weeks, it's still up 16%, right? There's a lot of things that are really constructive that are going on here. What's your take on some of this recent stock market volatility here in the US? Well, good to see you guys. And, you know, it has been as expected a volatile Q3. I mean, that's what everybody prognosticated. And September was always supposed to be a more volatile month than, you know, the one with the most downside. And that's what we got. We have been working through a lot of market fears. And I would say the biggest one of them has been the Delta variant and how the growth is going to adjust or not and adjust downwards or not. You add the supply chain issues on top, you add the Fed taper. So in other words, the market is fretting about a lot of these things in a time that has been seasonally historically weak. And so that's why we've got this combination. And that's why September was such a down month. But Dan, I'm looking through to year end. And I'm looking through what this typical seasonality is into year end and what the fundamentals are going to look like. And I see a very different picture, the one that is more positive for Q4. So just to put some stats around it, the markets typically are up 78% of the time in Q4. And this is data going back to 1970. So a lot of data on our side. And if I look at the last 20 years of market returns, just how much are they up? Just how positive does Q4 tend, be, tend to be? Well, it's up about 4% or so. The S&P tends to be up 4% on average in Q4. Now, if you take out the years that were negative 
for Q4, then you end up with a 7% or 7.5% number. So I think the seasonality is very much on our side. And it's not to say that we should only invest on seasonality, but this is where I go back to growth fundamentals. And I think a lot of the issues that we've been dealing with in Q3, I think we're going to get resolution to a lot of them in Q4. And growth in the U.S. and especially globally is just going to look a lot better. Certainly feels that way. And things happen a lot quicker today than they did five, 10 years ago. And subset of what you just talked about, there are a couple of groups that you like. I know you like the travel stocks, but I want to drill down on energy, if I may, because over the summer, it was universal. Everybody loved energy. As a matter of fact, Tom Lee came on a podcast and talked about it. He came on the network a number of times. And energy had a pretty precipitous decline seemingly now it's getting its footing back. What are your thoughts on energy as we head into the fourth quarter? I like energy. So first of all, Guy, I will say that it has rallied a lot just in the month of September. You know, it's the top performing sector. It's up 10%. And, you know, if you look at some of the technical indicators, it's kind of flirting with the overbought level. It's not quite there. But if I take a step back and say, what are the oil fundamentals going to look like in Q4? They're going to be incredibly bullish. If you look at the demand outlook and the still constrained supply picture, by the end of December, we're going to be running a 1.5 million barrels a day deficit. So we're going to be drawing inventories at the time where oil inventories are already well below their five-year averages. So this is a very bullish setup for the oil market. Now, OPEC meets next week. And I think that's one of the near-term event risks. You know, is it possible that they decide to bump up that production and do they release some more oil into the market, more than 400,000 barrels that they do now? I think it's possible, but probably not likely. Because the other dynamic of oil going into 2022, we might actually flip into a surplus. So does OPEC want to release more oil into the market this quarter, knowing that we may not need it in 2022? I think probably not. So I'm willing to look through that event risk. And then, Guy, to come back to the energy equities, the break-even for a lot of these companies, even to cover the dividend, is $50 a barrel. With oil trading at 70, and not just in the near-term front month, but also if you look at the strip and longer-dated strip, there's a lot of profitability that some of these oil companies are generating. So, you know, the way I like to say it is oil and gas today is everything that it wasn't in 2015, 2016. Coming out of the pandemic, these companies have lower uh, leverage and better profitability. So Anastasia, you just talked about better fundamentals as it relates to growth into Q4, into 2022. A lot of the data here in the US has been decelerating. We knew it would be decelerating. We had that kind of V-reversal in the economy. But I think that if you just take a look at Q3 GDP, and again, I know you can explain it away by a lot of different bottlenecks and supply chain disruptions and demand disruptions from the Delta variant, that sort of thing. But when we started the quarter, I think estimates for GDP were probably north of 8%. And here we are now, I think Goldman and Morgan have been tripping over each other to kind of lower their estimates and they're probably just above 3%. And so the idea that you're going to get some of that back in Q4, right? That's kind of a big part of the thesis here. And you'll see maybe some growth reaccelerate. I guess the question here is this, is that the U.S. consumer, we're seeing the data get weaker. We're seeing some weaker economic data across the board here. Rates are going higher. I think the 30-year mortgage just went about 3% for the first time since June. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here where that consumer that we know has been like the kind of the stalwart for the economy, maybe it's not so rosy right now. And the last piece of that puzzle is the jobs data has been really kind of squishy over the last few months So I feel like people are overly optimistic here and looking past what might be some real fits and starts about the U.S. recovery, but also as it relates to the global recovery, because I think what's going on in China right now and some other emerging markets is not particularly that bullish to me as I think about risk assets. Yeah, Dan, you bring up a good point about the consumer. It seems like things are not as straightforward and just not as rosy. And I think inflation outlook has a lot to do with it. I mean, if you look at core PC, it is the highest that we've had since the early 90s at 3.6%. And for as much as people talk about it being transitory, I don't think it's all that transitory. I think we're still going to be seeing well above 2% inflation for the foreseeable future. So that is going to constrain the consumer in the U.S. somewhat. 
And that's, by the way, the reason why the GDP estimates for Q4 in the United States are not that much higher than they are for Q3 after they've been revised down. So I don't think the growth uptick in Q4 necessarily comes from the U.S. side of the equation, but I do think it comes from the international side of the equation. And I say this because if we were to look at COVID cases globally in July and August, they were just ripping higher. And if we were to look at the vaccination rates globally, they're at 28% uh, first dose. Now, fast forward to today, and those cases have peaked. They're coming down in China. They're coming down in India, Brazil. And the vaccination rates for a lot of these economies are now 45%. So we've built a lot of natural immunity, especially in emerging markets. And so what I think happens in Q4 is a lot of that pent up demand comes back. A lot of that mobility comes back. And you look at the GDP estimates in China, they were flat in Q3. They go to 7% in Q4. For emerging markets, even ex-China, you're still looking at a very solid 6 or 7% growth rate. So guys, to come back to the energy point, that's why I like the energy trade, because it's about the comeback of international demand for oil. And by the way, the comeback of business travel and cross-border travel as well. I'm going to play the role of Danny Moses here, if you'll just allow me for a second. Here we go. Hi, Anastasia. It's Danny. I just actually got off the golf course. You might know me from the movie that I was featured prominently in, The Big Chill. Hey there, Danny. What you're talking about (laughs) seems to be somewhat of a stagflationary environment that I've been talking about on the tape for quite some time. Can you speak to that? And is there a defense against that? Great question, Danny. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for that, guy. I think we are in a bit of stagflation environment, I would say temporarily, as we wait for that inflation to ease and growth to accelerate. Clearly, inflation is going to be above 2-3% for longer than people expected. But I think that's the 2021 story in terms of uh, bottlenecks and supply chain constraints. I think the 2022 story is going to be about the easing of some of these bottlenecks, which eventually will allow inflation to come back down. You know, the reason, Guy, we have this elevated inflation is because this has been a year of fits and starts. We tried to come back online. We couldn't. We tried to get the ports back operational. We couldn't. And As more and more people globally get vaccinated, as immunity builds, as we get the kids vaccinated, hopefully towards the end of this year, I don't think in 2022 we're going to be in this year of fits and starts with COVID. So that, in turn, should ease the bottlenecks, that should get that production running more smoothly, and I think we will eventually come back down from that 3.6% core PC inflation. So that's why I say it is a temporary, perhaps, state of stagflation, but I do think that resolves in 2022. So let's talk markets here. That's a great wrap on the economy, and I think that's consensus is thinks that we're going to see a reacceleration once we get by Delta and once we have most of the world vaccinated the way, you know, our U.S. is, at least on their vaccination rates. As far as markets are concerned, we just saw the S&P sold off, I think, last week at its lows, 5% or so, the NASDAQ a little more. So we're kind of testing some of those levels again. But the NASDAQ broke last week lows, and the S&P has kind of held. I think it speaks to what you were talking about with the rotations, right? So we've seen money come out of big cap tech. We know the top five or six names in the S&P are about 25% all big tech. The top five or six names in the NDX and NASDAQ 100 make up half the weight, right? And so we're seeing this kind of underperformance right now relative to rates. What is your take on that? Will that persist? And ultimately, can the rotation into some of these more, I don't know if you want to call them cyclically sensitive or GDP sensitive names, can they keep the S&P outperforming here? Or are we likely to have just a real downdraft, maybe 10%? Wouldn't that be kind of normal off of a, uh, you know, we were up 21% just like three weeks ago at all-time highs, down 10%, which would bring you to about the 200-day moving average in the S&P 500. Does that make sense to you? Look, historically, it should, right? On average, we get a 5% pullback every quarter. This year has been a big exception. And historically, we get a 10% drawdown every year. And we've yet to see that too. So historically, Historically, that would make sense, but I don't think it makes sense in the environment of this great liquidity that we have and the growth rebound that's still quite strong. For the S&P, what I would say is let's just look at the math. And if you look at the math, you've got the next 12-month earnings, which should come in at roughly $215. 
on the S&P and you apply the current multiple to it, 20.8, you get a kind of fair value on the S&P, which is, you know, 4,500 or so. So I think that's realistic for us to get to by year end. Now, the question, how do we get there? You know, do we get there in everything uniformly or do we get there in tech? Do we get it in cyclicals? My take is that this rotation trade that started out of tech and into cyclicals, I think that continues. And it's not that we should worry about all tech and it's not that we should sell all tech, but there's pockets where you know there is excessive valuation that's been built up for years. And I point to the software sector in particular. You look at those EV to EBITDA or price to sales ratios, they're literally off the charts relative to the last 10 years. You look at a hedge fund holdings, they're a very long software. And for a long time, that was for a very good reason, because you look at the global IT spending, it's going to grow eight or 9% this year. And a lot of it is going to be spent on software, but it's going to slow down a little bit next year. And rates are going up and valuations are stretched. And there's a lot of, you know, very loved positioning in software. So I think the rate move higher that we have is going to cause some profit taking, by the way. As, as we're talking in Washington, they're talking about the $3.5 trillion reconciliation plan that may raise taxes, including capital gains taxes. I don't know if it's going to be retroactive. It's most likely going to be to kick in in 2022. So do you take a little bit of gains on your software positions that have so much of those embedded gains? I think you do. So you put all that together. And I do think there's a little bit of downside or at least lack of outperformance for the software space. And the last point is there's an alternative, right? There's now a growth alternative to software and it is in energy and it is in some of those travel reopening trades as well. You guys know that domestic travel is still down, but it's bounced back a lot. International travel is still down so much more and business travel is down even more than that. So I think the big optionality that you have in the market is to position for the rebound in international and business travel. Well, domestic travel in the Nathan household hasn't diminished at all. I mean, he thinks it's the 80s all over again, just so you know. <laughs> and one of the things I'm aware of is that rates are going higher. You just mentioned that. I think rates are going significantly higher than we are today. And I think they're going higher for the wrong reasons. Do you want to sort of opine on your thoughts on rates before we segue to the crypto world? Yeah, I mean, rates are trading at 1.52 on a 10 years, somewhere what I would deem to be the bottom of the range that is appropriate for the current economic environment. I think a move higher to 1.75 is probably justified over the next few months. It's a function of a few things. It's a function of what do we get in terms of the growth outcome. And I do think there's some upside building, and as been mentioning, from the international side. I think international growth can surprise to the upside. International yields can surprise to the upside, and that should push up the tenure. The other thing that's happened, Guy, recently is that the market is now fast forwarding a little bit just how close we might be to the first rate hike. So a few weeks ago, we were looking at being 23 months away. Now we're saying maybe it's 17 months away. And so that too should push up the level of yields higher. So I think the risks to rates are skewed to the upside, which of course helps the reopening trade. So we're talking higher rates. We're talking inflation. Your firm, iCapital, has a partnership with Grayscale Investments. And we know that Grayscale is one of the the pioneers, I I would say, right, in, in digital assets. So speak to us a little bit about what you think of the store of value aspect of Bitcoin versus gold. We've spent some time talking about it on the podcast this year. There was a time last summer where gold looked like it was ready to party a little bit, right? It was nearing like, you know, all-time highs, um, if you will. And at that point, Bitcoin just started to take off, right? This was this was August 2020. And then the two just crossed and they haven't looked back since then. Obviously, Bitcoin has been very volatile, but I think that gold is kind of failing that inflation hedge, right, story right now, whereas Bitcoin and some other I guess, cryptos that are deemed to be stores of value have kind of done very well. Give us some thoughts on that. And and are you advising clients that they should have allocations in crypto? And then the last part of that is, is just crypto stealing? Is Bitcoin stealing all of gold's thunder right now? Oh, well, it sure looks like it, right? Yeah. What I would say, Dan, is that it's really hard to pigeonhole Bitcoin 
into a correlation with one particular asset class. We recently looked at how Bitcoin moved relative to gold versus the US dollar versus the S&P 500. And the thing that you notice is that these are not static correlations and they, they change and evolve depending on what the key drivers are. So for example, going back to I think May of 2019, you had when Bitcoin moved higher, it moved higher in tandem with gold. And that was because the real interest rates were falling at the time. Then, as you mentioned, there's kind of this decoupling of the relationship and Bitcoin continued to move higher. Well, that coincided with a period of dollar weakness because the Fed was still and is still uh, buying uh, and making all those bond purchases. Well, most recently, Bitcoin and crypto has been more correlated with the S&P 500, which also makes sense. It's, you know, it's a way to transfer value. It's used sometimes in certain payments. So there's a pro risk element to it as well in the global payment system. So it's really hard to pigeonhole it. And so you really have to understand from the tactical perspective what moves it when and how. But to your question, you know, why do we have the partnership and why you know, are we advising clients to allocate to crypto? I do think that this is a nascent but emerging and an important asset class for investors to have in their portfolio. And I say this for a couple of reasons. First of all, this is over $2 trillion of market cap. This is not something to sneeze at and is becoming competitive uh, with some of the other asset classes out there. The second thing is, why should you add an asset to your portfolio? To me, there's two criteria. The first one is, does it have a low or lower correlation with the rest of your portfolio? And as we just discussed, it certainly does. It has a unique differentiated correlation with gold, the dollar, and the S&P 500. The second reason why you should add something to the portfolio is, does it have the potential to boost your risk adjusted returns? You know, in technical speak, does it boost your sharp ratio? And we went back and we looked at, I think, five years worth of data. The answer is yes. <laughs> you know, if the sharp ratio, the risk adjusted return for the S&P has been 0.6, it's close to two or over two for some of those crypto holdings. So I do think it is time for investors to consider a strategic allocation to crypto. You know the volatility, 70% or you know, 120% in the case of Ethereum. But as long as you're getting compensated for that, I think it's an important allocation to have. You mentioned the correlation to equities. And one of the things that I find pretty fascinating is that when crypto had that huge run up in 17 and then crashed in 18, there was real no, no correlation to equities, right? And then, but in the end of 2018, when the stock market went down, what, how much guy in, in the fourth quarter? I believe the stock market went down 19.9% from October until Christmas Eve. Yeah, that's right. And then crypto got crammed, right? It was down like 60 or something percent, I think Bitcoin or something like that. And then, you know, again, during the pandemic sell off when the S&P 500 went down like 35%, you know, from its highs in February to lows in March, I think, again, it got cut in half, Bitcoin, that sort of thing. So here we are now where crypto did get killed from its April highs, right? Bitcoin lost 50 percent of its value, but the stock market kept on chugging along. And at that time, the volatility in the stock market was super low, right? We didn't have a sell-off of more than like 3% during that time period. So I guess the question that I would have is, what would you expect if we were in the throes of, let's say, a 20% correction in the S&P 500 from those recent highs? What would you expect crypto to do? Because it really has been its own animal over the last, let's say, you know, couple years. Yeah, it sure has. And I guess the biggest question would be, why are equity is down 20% and what are the central banks doing? But I think not without knowing that, I would expect crypto to come under pressure as it has been more correlated with equities more so than gold or, or the dollar. The reality is this is a sleeve of the web 3.0 as we call it, or this is a sleeve of kind of the technology allocation in your portfolio. And I think investors need to think about it you know, in addition to the store of value, I think they need to think about it as an optionality on innovation, on technology. They can disrupt payments. They can disrupt smart contracts. They can enable payments between Internet of Things. So I do. I would suspect that it would come under pressure if the S and P did. But on the flip side, what you have here is the opportunity for more institutional adoption of Bitcoin and crypto, uh, for more consumer adoption, and then potentially the use of uh, Bitcoin into the in the global payment system. So I wouldn't look 
past that. You know, we all need to acknowledge that this is going to be an incredibly volatile asset class. I probably wouldn't want to market time it. It has very unique set of things that drive it, like how much, you know, Bitcoin is, you know, on the exchange and available for sale, how much are miners selling. So that's what dictates it near term. But longer term, if you look at some of the valuation models out there, where does the intrinsic value of Bitcoin or any sort of crypto come from? It comes from the network effect. How many more users of Bitcoin are we going to have? Between Bitcoin and Ethereum, you're probably close to 100 million wallets. Is that number going to rise? And based on everything that we can see, I think the answer to that is yes. So with that, the longer term kind of strategic opportunity in Bitcoin should be there as well. There's certain voices uh, that come on to CNBC that you need to turn the volume up for. I am not one of those voices, <laughs> am, uh, Anastasia, but you are. Where can we find you? Talk to me about your Twitter account, what you're doing, some of the things you're working on. Oh, God, you're definitely one of those voices. I turn up the volume every time. You could definitely find some of our latest insights on our website, iCapitalNetwork.com. I do publish a weekly commentary piece that touches on anything from crypto to opportunity in, in clean energy to the outcome of German elections and really strive to provide the actionable insights around it. The so what? What do we do about it from the investment perspective? And yes, I am also on Twitter, Anastasia Morosa underscore one, and uh, look forward to seeing you guys there. So you got the underscore one there, Guy. You're just uh, at Guy Adami. I'm at Risk Reversal. Anastasia, thanks a lot for joining us. It's our pleasure. I've always enjoyed being on CNBC with you. I enjoy listening to you and watching you when you're on. I follow you on the Twitter. So um, I will start getting your newsletter. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.